Hello, I'm Frank, your host of Reader's Labyrinth. We've all been there, looking for decent horror fiction on YouTube, only to find yet another channel churning out endless Reddit stories. If that's your thing, then more power to you. For those of us, however, who prefer original tales narrated by the author themselves, the pickings can be quite slim. Thankfully for me, I discovered Tony Capabianco last year and his YouTube channel, The Haunted Half Moon Inn. The Half Moon is a jumble of real-life experiences by the author and some fiction elements blended in the first few episodes. Tony later flexes his horror muscles and soon introduces us to the staples of commercial horror, werewolves, vampires, and witches, all with cool plot twists presented to us in a folksy narration. You can find his work on his YouTube channel, a link in the show notes and pinned comment. Follow him on Twitter as well. Also, since Tony puts in a ton of work and his stories are so cool, would you please consider signing up for his Patreon account, link in the show notes provided. And also, as a personal side note, I would like to say that I really enjoy hosting Reader's Labyrinth, and I hope that you derive some form of value from this. And I would ask that you would consider subscribing to my channel, hitting that like button and turning the notifications on. And if you've enjoyed the interview with Tony as much as I have, then please share this video. Thank you. And now without further ado, please join me in welcoming Tony to Reader's Labyrinth. Good evening, Tony. How are you doing? I'm I'm really great. Thanks, Frank. How are you? Awesome. I'm doing great, man. I'm really, really amped up for this interview. Um, me uh, too. I've been, yeah, thank you. I've been uh, looking forward to this all week. Same here, man. Same here. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I know that we're both busy. We have stuff going on, but I really believe in your work. Um, I believe in the Haunted Half Moon Inn. I think it's some really, really good fiction and... It's original fiction is what it is. And that's probably the point that really impressed me the most because there's a lot of fiction out there where folks will read stuff off of Reddit, which is awesome. Yeah. Viewers, if you're listening and you read stories off of Reddit, you have a YouTube channel yourself, that's perfectly fine. No I complaints agree. from I, us. I'll listen to some of that as well sometimes. Okay. Awesome, man. Same here. You know, there's some dark stories too floating around on Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a snob when it comes to that. I like all different kinds of stuff. Whether oh, for it's original sure, for or sure. it's copy pasta, I like it all. Oh, for sure. Have Have you heard those old podcasts where like they they take the old creepy pastas from like the 30s and 40s and 50s and they'll no, remake them? No, I haven't them? come across that yet. Okay, note to self: I'm definitely sending you a link to that so you can get a hold of that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> So, Tony, tell me, my man, what made you want to enter the horror genre? Well, really, I've been a fan of horror my whole life, so it was kind of a no-brainer for me. But my dad got me into it when I was young, and I just never really looked back. I've always just felt a certain sense of comfort in horror, and my dad passed a little over 10 years ago. So when I watch horror, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm, I'm back with him. So there's kind of that uh, emotional part to it. And apart from that, I just love good stories. And I think that horror is a great 
it's it's a great genre because it's a great way to just communicate good versus evil. So it takes everything that you have in other genres, but you get an epic scale to it, something that you can't do if you're just telling, let's say you have a corrupt corporation as the villain. It's not the same thing as if you have, let's say, Pennywise or you have Michael Myers or a, a Dracula. It's just an entirely different scale. So I, I think that's a big part of it. I'm really hearing you on the emotional component of that answer because what really got me into horror was my late mother. And I can remember staying up till 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night when I was probably 10, 11 or 12. And we would watch, you know, the feared R-rated horror movies. And yep. my entrance into the genre was definitely the old uh, Hammer films with Dracula. Oh, Nice. Love those. Oh yeah, yeah, and and my mother loved those films. You know, you know, Dracula was her favorite monster. So, I was kind of raised on Frank Langella. I was raised on um, uh, the nineteen ninety or ninety one version of Dracula. I think they had Gary the Oldman Stoker in it. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Bram Stoker's. Yeah, by uh, I believe it was Scorsese did that one. No, right. Francis um, Ford. No, no, that was Francis, Francis Ford, Ford Coppola. Coppola. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I was kind of raised on the classics, you know. But for me personally, the monster that always scared me the most was werewolves, hands down. <laughs> was... <laughs> yeah, I like werewolves. Uh, probably what scared me the most would be anything with possession. Because I always believed mm. that uh, good versus evil and that spirits are real. So for me, something like The Exorcist, it, it could happen. So it, it just terrified me because it's something that you can't see. And I suppose maybe that's where my one tagline comes from. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean that they aren't there. Because when, when you think of demons or an evil spirit, it's probably about the creepiest thing you could think of. Like if you think it's a reality and that, that stuff's really there, it's creepy. Yeah, the thing about the movie The Exorcist is that if you were a you know, traditional believing religious person, then it took an element to your worldview, like this metaphysical worldview that reality is non-material. Mm -hmm. There are these entities that are non-material called demons, and these demons are going to come and freaking get you. And just the um, the visceral horror at seeing the physical transformations in the movie The Exorcist mm -hmm. would also kind of play on like this more fundamental. Let's see, I'm trying to think of the movie critic. But he was talking about how in our postmodern society, we have all these anxieties about our body. We yeah. have all these anxieties about mental health. And The Exorcist is a summation of all of that. Yes. So really, really creepy movie. I agree. It's like a, and it's literally like a manifestation of evil. It is. So yeah. It I mean, it's literally and physically. Believe, but yeah. it, puts it, it puts it, it gives evil a body. Which I think really goes back to what we were discussing. That's what horror does. It can take evil that just seems like this, more like an idea to some people, but it really fleshes it out, and it's just in your face. So that's a good segue to our next question, then. What, in your opinion, makes for good horror? Good horror, yeah, good question. Um, I'd say horror is like anything else in, in one way. It's got to have a good story. You have to have good characters. Atmosphere is important to me. And the thing that's different about horror, though, is 
you can have a B movie and I'll enjoy it. If you give me a B movie of some other genre, I probably won't make it through the film. So for me, it's a little weird. I, I can enjoy something like Night of the Demons, the original one from the 80s, or Witchboard. Night of the Demon. All yeah. those good movies, but they're some of my favorites. But um, as far as what's actually good, then we'd look at The Exorcist, uh, Halloween, the original one, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think all of those things, you have great music. You're going to have a great eerie atmosphere, compelling characters, and you're going to have excellent villains because your heroes are only as good as your villains. If you don't have a compelling bad guy, then the hero is just going to be boring and everything's going to fall short. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, can you explain the hate against John Carpenter's version of the thing based no. <laughs> on uh on campbell's short story who goes there like to me it has all of the elements that you were just talking about a creepy yeah. atmosphere i think it's a great movie one hell of a freaking villain it's like <laughs> i mean it's like existential nihilism like come to physical form okay and it's yeah. like this monster ram i mean the music especially in that movie but the amount of hate that that movie generates to this day is it, it boggles my mind and it's good horror too it's and damn especially good. nowadays i feel like there's so many people that are just anxious to hate on something oh so i know i don't know I, I don't know if it's always been that way and maybe social media just makes it more apparent but whatever the reason may be i don't know why so many people would hate that movie. You know, it's funny that you bring up social media. And right before that, you said that what makes a good main character is a good villain. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like a lot of in social media is making us the villain. Yeah. I mean, it's Definitely making your neighbor the villain. Yeah. and Or even sometimes I'll catch myself and I'm, I'm kind of the villain there. Why did I post that? Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. Stuff that you wouldn't do if you had a person sitting down with you face to face, but when you're behind a keyboard, you'll, you'll just go at it and not think twice about it. And then when you do think twice about it, you go, Oh, well. So I'm definitely not name dropping, even though I am going to name, name drop right now, <laughs> but Steve's go check. <laughs> um, he tweeted something out about a couple months ago, and this is kind of a theme in his observation. I don't know if you subscribe to his sub stack. And as a matter uh, I of fact, I may have to add. I don't think I'm subscribed, but yeah. I have read it. Okay. As a matter of fact, I may have to put a link to his stuff in the show notes, actually, because mm -hmm. it's kind of it's kind of germane to what we're talking about. But he said it's this phenomenon of talking to an icon that's not the real person. You're talking okay. to a title instead of what their name is in this dehumanization process. And what I've noticed myself is that it puts us all in the uncanny valley. We're like, hey, this is kind of a person. They kind of have feelings. They kind of have thoughts like I do, but it's not really a person. That's that's a great so option. kind of acting this. It was Steve's originally. It wasn't mine. Yeah, I wish no, no, was. I know. But I mean, it was he made a great observation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure he did. So we were talking about movies. And in a lot of movies, there's gore. In a lot of horror books, there are gore, there's slashers, there's guts, there's blood going everywhere. Oftentimes, I'll hear someone make a comment like, well, I like horror movies, I like atmosphere, but I don't like blood or gore. With that being said, what's your opinion, and where does this fit or not fit 
into your own writing? I love it all. About the only thing that personally I'm not a fan of in horror would be what some people call torture porn. So if you have too much torture, I, I just don't enjoy watching it. I don't hate on those movies. It's just, for me, it, it's not something that I enjoy. But everything else, I love slashers. Uh, something like Friday the 13th, or if you've seen Halloween Kills, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but the creative kills and something like that, I, I like that for the artistry because all the special effects that go into it, it's I find that entertaining. Um, and I also like your psychological horrors. I like more uh, mystery kind of stuff, supernatural horror, or if it's just a human's a bad guy, I, I, I like it all. A good ghost story, love it. Oh, yeah. And I think like if the gore and if the slashing and the splatter, if it helps tell the story and like, well, kind of going back to John Carpenter's The Thing, if we take away the gore, do we really mm -hmm. have a movie? <laughs> <laughs> good, good question. <laughs> Thank you. Or Evil Dead 2, that, that's fairly gorely. Oh, gorely. yeah, yeah. New word, yeah. gorely. <laughs> gorely, I like it. Uh, hashtag gorely. Hashtag haunted half moon in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing about the Evil Dead movies is that what, what I liked about them is that they took some Lovecraftian mythos mm -hmm. and they put it in a, I mean, it wasn't even a B movie, the original. I mean, it was a terrible C movie, <laughs> if, <laughs> if there is such a category. But they, but damn it, they pulled it off. They did. Like they the pulled it off. They did and with the trees. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was so creative for a low budget. That's probably one Oh, for sure it was. Really admire it. But the second one, yes, <laughs> sequel's the best. Because you get all everything oh, from for the sure. first one, but it's also a comedy. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, the first one didn't take itself seriously, and it wasn't funny. The second <laughs> one didn't take it serious, or it didn't take itself serious at all, but somehow it was funny and scary. I mean, it has some genuine scenes in there where just the awfulness of his character and some of the scenarios he was caught in. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of the evil dead, I know they had the Necronomicon in there, HP Lovecraft, all that HP Lovecraft from what scholars have looked at from what other writers have looked at. It doesn't appear as though he believed in what today we, uh, we would call high strangeness or paranormal. He was more of a materialist. Everything can be reduced down to molecules are bumping into one another and somehow, you know, that, that, that creates the entire, you know, the universe that we see around us. Mm -hmm. um, so when you were growing up, did you ever experience anything strange or paranormal? Yes. Uh, well, before I get into what I experienced, my, my first introduction to it was really stories from my dad. Um, he, oh, he was okay. the most yeah. honest person that I've ever met, so I never questioned whether or not he was telling the truth. But even if I did question it, it doesn't matter because everyone, whether they were relatives or friends of his, that went to this house that he lived in when he was a kid, all experienced stuff that is worse than stuff that you see on TV. It, it was a real haunted house, and the place still gives me the, the creeps. And, in fact, that's where the Haunted Half Moon Inn comes from. Um, it, it was a farmhouse when my dad moved in there back in the 60s. But back in the day, it was actually a, an inn called the Half Moon Inn. And it was built in the late teens. It was a real inn. Oh, oh, okay. All right, cool. Yeah. But some of the stuff that went on there, you'd have 
objects you put it down, they'd end up somewhere else. Some of the earlier stories that I did on, on Haunted Half Moon Inn, I used some of the stuff that were my dad's stories, but I incorporated it in there. So the misplaced items would be one. Um, footsteps. He, he They would always hear the toilet flush when there was nobody there. Footsteps up and down the stairs. So they'd be sleeping at night, and then you just hear boom, boom, boom. Someone going up and down the stairs. Look, nobody was there. Um, they even heard laughing. They heard moaning, like, mmm. And the moaning they, they heard one time was about 2, 3 in the morning. They It was like something wanted them to be awake. They were asleep, and, like, everyone in the family was just awake. And then there was moaning. And then there was no one in the house. So just really creepy stuff. And then people from the city, my, my dad's from the city originally, they would visit and one relative would put a chair by the door for security at night to, you know, there was no lock on it. And she'd put the chair there and then turn around, the chair was gone. And then she put the chair back, turn around, the chair was moved from the door again. And then when she went to sleep at night, she felt arms coming out from the bed and just wrapped her up. So just to give you a sense of it. Um, so those are his stories and those stories inspired me to go kind of out of curiosity. And I made this a story and the very first uh, video I made for the channel was about my story. Um, I went to the, I went to his house, me and my best friend, and we were sitting in my 1990 Jeep before a football game. The engine was off, our hands are away from the wheel. And then all of a sudden the engine started to turn. My hands weren't touching it. And this is before there was keyless ignition, mind you. And it made a sound like when it's cold outside in the winter and you can't, the engine won't turn when you're turning the key. It made that sound, only no one was turning on the engine. So we, we got out of there. That would be one story and Another instance, I worked in a movie theater for my senior year in high school and then uh, on and off when I was in college. And everyone thought that the theater was haunted and they would see a, a ghost there. I didn't personally see a ghost in that instance. I just would feel a similar presence to what I would feel at my dad's old haunted farmhouse where it would get cold and you you just felt like you weren't alone. And it goes beyond fear because I've been afraid of different things. I've had uh, been robbed at gunpoint before, but this is a different kind of fear. It's it's hard to explain, I suppose, unless you've experienced it yourself. You know, when I was listening to your first couple of episodes of Haunted Half Moon Inn, I really got a sense of that. Like, you know, not necessarily that this was based on true events, but when you talk about that fear and that visceral fear, and I'm trying to put a word on it, Tony, it's not quite coming to me, but I have two experiences in my life, which I will talk about at a later time. I don't think I'm going to talk about that tonight, but not unless someone has been the there. Oh, yeah. Um, unless someone has been in that situation before, it's really beyond words. I mean, it's kind of like. It's kind of like on a cellular level, our body's been awakened to like this primordial predator that's in the same room with you. Like that's if you've ever gone, yeah, man. And like, if you've ever gone to like the zoo and there's like a big lion behind the glass or the cage or whatever, yep. and 
you know, you know, they say that the big cats can put out like this frequency mm-hmm. and uh, they've actually measured this like tigers and stuff and they can paralyze their prey and they can put out like this frequency that they create in their throat that disrupts like, you know, the signals in your brain and they use it to paralyze prey. They use it to track animals. I mean, it, it's crazy. So it, it's, it's amazing. If I could, yeah, and if I could crystallize that into words, that's the analogies that I would use for it. But I think that's very that fitting. A, uh, thank, thank you. Um, so going to our next question then, has your perception or thoughts about the paranormal changed at all during your life? And where do you stand now, Tony? Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, I've always, it's because of my dad, I never doubted it. And then when I've had experiences, it just reinforces it. So I was never really in a situation where I could see the world as being only materialistic, where there's just biology and matter and nothing else. I've, I've always known that there's something more, something spiritual, something unseen. So I, I don't think that's going to change. It, it hasn't changed. And then the outlook on it, I don't, I don't think anybody necessarily knows what's going on. Different different people, different religions will all have their viewpoint and claim that it's the only answer. But I don't think any of us can really know for sure what it is. So what do you think about ghost hunters? And I don't know if this was a question that we had gone over, but this is just kind of floating into my mind. Hmm. And they will try and measure you know, the temperature, they have instruments. And I don't know if you're familiar with Jimmy Aiken, but, but he goes into detail yeah. on this with the guests on his podcast. Um, I didn't know if you had dipped your toes in that world at all. If yeah, you had I'm ever done ghost to be hunting. Honest, with, uh, like uh, the ghost hunters. So oh, okay. from yeah, the old yeah. show, and I think they're back on the air now. So I'm yeah. more familiar with that than Jimmy. A- I mean, I know Jimmy Aiken, he's a Catholic apologist, but for as far as ghost hunting goes, I haven't heard Aiken speak to that. But um, if you're asking what I think about using machinery to try to capture some evidence, I think it's a a good idea. I mean, how else are you going to investigate something unless you at least try to to capture it in some way? And I don't know, because if it's unseen, it's probably not always going to be ideal for catching evidence. But if you can see an unseen force manipulating something that's not there, pretty compelling evidence, as long as you can prove that somebody didn't doctor the footage. I love how you put it, Tony. Like you said, if we could get some evidence, if we could get some evidence that, you know, it's non-material, it's material, whatever kind of labels that we want to put on it. But if we could actually prove it one way or another, and this leads into the next question for you. This is a hypothetical question. Mm-hmm. Uh, horror author, horror author Soren Narnia. He's the author of the Knife Point Horror Podcast. I heard him ask a host of this, if you had a box and inside that box was the answer to the question, is there a paranormal or super reality to our existence? Would you open the box? And here's the catch Mm -hmm. at the cost of everything you owned. In other words, you'd lose everything material that you had, your house, your home, your bank account, your job, your source of income, all that. But you you, Tony Capabianco, would know the answer to the question. Well, the first thought that comes to mind is how do I, how can I know that I can trust the box? 
How do I know what it's telling me? I'm, if I'm going to give up everything, how do I know it's not lying? You're taking a good Rene Descartes view of it. Um, <laughs> but let's say you I could, like that angle. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, won't, I, I won't be like that. I mean, I, I mean it. But um, to, to yeah. answer that question, I would say, no, I wouldn't open it because I, I already believe that I, I know that there's something more out there. So I don't, I don't need to open a box to, to get proof of it. If that answers, you know, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and truth be told, there's no right or wrong answer. I know whenever, so I'm scheduled to have uh Soren on, uh, in about a week or so from now, is it two weeks, a week? Man, I tell you what, I better check my calendar. I'm getting nervous. But <laughs> if he asked me that question, my response is going to be the same as yours, Tony. I'm not going to open that damn box. And this is why. Uh, so when I was going to USC, I double majored in history and philosophy. And this was kind of a question that floated around. Oh, you know, the philosopher had a chance to gain all the money in the world versus all the wisdom. He chose the wisdom. And then they asked the philosopher, hey, you know, what's the very first bit of wisdom that you have for us? And he goes, I should have chose the wealth. You know, I should have chose all the money. <laughs> but for me personally, I think that when we die, we're going to know the answer to these questions one way or another. I agree. Either the Christopher Hitchens of the world's right, we're going to go into darkness from which we came, no mm -hmm. existence, or or the non-materialists among us are correct, and there's going to be chapter two of your existence. I mean, really, when you get to it, that's the this only way not... anyone only one that's the only way anyone can be sure about it. But one day we'll all knock on that door and we'll see what's behind it. Hopefully, not for that's a long true. time. But... That's true. <laughs> Well, I hear you on that. Uh, I can definitely stand to put that day off for, you know, at least until I get all the kids out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> knock on wood, knock on wood, knock on wood. But um, so who is your favorite author, dead or alive? Who's your go-to guy or gal? I'm going to go with Stephen King. I know we've talked in the past. I know he's not your, your favorite, but for me, he's definitely my, my favorite simply because I don't know of anyone who's better at making compelling characters. So even if I don't like where a story ends up, the the ride is fun. And he just makes really complex and they seem like real people. It doesn't seem like somebody just created something simply to get a point across in a story. It, it They just feel real. So for me, it would be Stephen. You King. know, there's a, Oh yeah. And, and, you know, you and millions and millions and millions sure. of other people as well. So, I mean, I, I'm not know, I would probably have the minority. <laughs> what What's that? <laughs> I, I'm not original with that opinion. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, um, you bring up a bunch of good points though. I mean, Stephen King has very, very, very compelling characters and oh my gosh, is he a great writer? Uh, I just, you, you know, I kind of have my He's own prolific. thoughts on Think it. Think about how much he writes. I, I don't know how he does oh, it. Oh, man, yeah. He well, the Russians have nothing. Well, the Russians have Pushkin, and we have uh, Stephen King. He was a very, very pro prolific writer. I mean, he basically became a part of the cultural landscape. And if you look at Stephen King now, I mean, Stephen King is going to be, I mean, long past the, you know, long past the time when he's put down in the ground, they're going to be studying his books in schools. I mean, he's still going to be part of our cultural landscape in a much deeper way than Poe or Ambrose Pierce or any of those guys could ever have hoped to have achieved, I think. I agree. And and the, oh, yeah. The other yeah. great thing about that is the critics will be very upset. 
<laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't mean yeah. people that well, don't like him. I mean professional critics yeah. who, who say that he can't write and you know, but the truth is that's what people are gonna remember. They're gonna remember his books. Well, I forget the year that he was given this, but he was given a literary um fiction award and if any of my author friends or reader friends are watching this, I'm going to sound so ignorant as we say in the South, I'm going to sound ignorant right now, but I cannot remember what it's called, but I do remember a bunch of the literary critics of professionals just raking him through the coals. And I thought it was totally unfair, unfounded. I agree. So I think I know what Stephen King thinks about religion because Lord, does he let you know what his <laughs> opinion is? So what do you, th so do you think, Tony, mm -hmm. that religion helps or hurts fiction or does it have any effect at all? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> we can move on. Interview's over. Just kidding. That's it. Where's the button? I'm pushing it. <laughs> no, it's a, that's an excellent question. Um, I think it, like anything else, it's pretty nuanced and it really depends. So if somebody you can write well with or without religion. I think where religion can become a hindrance is once you delve into the more fundamentalist forms of whatever religion. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with Christianity. So whether it's a more traditional form or a fundamental form of Christianity, then it gets to a point where it can stifle all creativity. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. I'm just saying in my experience, I, I know people that have been very fundamentalist and they'll see Harry Potter is evil. They'll see even Lord of the Rings is evil. They'll see, certainly they'll see vampires as evil. Um, and once you start seeing the devil under every rock and it, it stifles the imagination, I think it sucks out creative oxygen and you're gonna be left with very hollow art, if you can even call it art, if it's fictional, I'm not saying that they can't do other things, but I think in that way it, it can harm writing. And then on the opposite end, it, it could be a problem too. If you're a strict materialist and you think that there's nothing, it doesn't mean that you can't be creative, but I think you're going to have a harder time coming up with supernatural things. Um, I, I think it's going to be harder to create worlds that are unseen and if you do write about it, it might not be quite as believable. It might come across as a bit tinny, if, if I may say. Um, so probably something moderate, a moderate view would be best for writing as far as religion goes, in my opinion. Boy, there's a whole lot to unpack there, Tony. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, we could probably have an entirely separate discussion on that very issue. Absolutely. But... Just some observations, and I'm thinking off the top of my head right now. When I've seen people who are creative, they have a creative spark. They have a story they're working on that's sitting in their sock drawer. When they find traditional, confessional, hardcore religion, like you said, they lose that creative spark. And I love the analogy that you said of the oxygen just being sucked out of their lives, it seems. And... We're not saying that religion is bad necessarily. No, not at all. Okay. No, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but what we are saying is that when it sucks up the bandwidth of your imagination to where you're following the precepts of this religion, of this holy book, of piety, mm 
And it becomes um, the, more like the letter of the law yeah. rather than the spirit of the law, I think is what we're saying. Precisely, yeah. And you end up with fictional propaganda where the religion is artificially inserted into it. I mean, it, it's... Yes. But, it, what yes. I, but, but what I have seen, though, is I've seen um, some religious folk get very religious, lose that creative spark. But I've also seen the materialist you know, um, you know, among us, our friends, you know, who, you know, mm -hmm. who are friends of mine, you know, they're authors and they've written, it seems like they can hold on to that creative spark much better and longer than the fundamentalist can. And that's just an observation I've had because it seems like, Oh, you, you know, uh, Billy, Bob and Joe, you know, they're atheists now, but they can still create incredible fiction. Yet when I hear that, you know, Billy, Bob and Susie over here, you know, they've converted to the whatever church of whatever, choose your poison again, then, yeah, okay, then I guess the bottle is going to be capped on their creativity. And that seems to be just a common pattern to it. I don't know, just just an observation. Yeah, and that I, I agree with you. But like I said, I think it's more when you just get to, it's about the extremes, extremes in either direction, I think, can have a negative effect on any creativity, especially writing. You know, I can remember, and I know that we're going off of a question, but we kind of covered this earlier, so I'm just going to kind of give some thoughts, and you can give some thoughts okay. on this. But, uh, you know, the subject of religion and writing, but something else that was in my mind is when you and me were growing up, the big boogeyman was TV. Yes. Now, I think you and me have both established that TV was central in our development and what we would later consume in entertainment and maybe even our worldview to a little, you know, to an extent. Sure. It has been. Oh, yeah. And you know, it wasn't just horror stuff that inspired mm -hmm. us, but um, what do you think of horror TV now or shows right now? Do you have any preferences? Is there anything that that's more contemporary? That's your go-to horror film or your movies to watch? Uh, yeah. I, I like the new stuff. I like the old stuff. Um, as you can see from my shirt, I like the new version of it. I like the um, old miniseries oh, yeah. version with Tim Curry. Uh, I love them both. They're different, two different takes on the same character. Um, I like, uh, let's see, what's a good show that's on right now? Uh, American Horror Story. I like the earlier seasons. Uh, I didn't care for the most recent season, but that's a newer show. So that's another one that we can count. Um what else is new? <laughs> so I don't know if you've seen the Penny Dreadful. Have no, I have. That? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it yet. Okay, that that was really really good. So they managed to take some of the classic monsters—your vampires, your witches, your werewolves—all that—and they managed to present a more contemporary view of the monsters, while still retaining some of that metaphysical dimensions to them. And everything has taken place in like this steampunk. Um, you know, this Victorian, you know, industrial city of London mm -hmm. and they spread over to like the American wild West. So there, I mean, I mean, of course, I mean, it's horror fiction, so they're going to be taking some liberties, but yeah, but that's really, really, really good. And uh, I don't know if you've seen archive 81. I think. Yes. I saw that. That was on Netflix. That was very good. Oh yeah. Now as a suspenseful movie, it's kind of a horror movie. I thought that that was spot on. It had a lot of the same elements we were talking about. So I agree. That was a good one. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah. I can't believe I haven't seen Penny Dreadful. It sounds like it's right up my alley. I don't know how I missed I'm, it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to connect with you on Twitter, which there is a link in the show notes and pinned comment. 
And okay. I'm going to have to send, send you a link to it so you can watch that. It's definitely worth watching. Absolutely. So um, I guess to kind of close us out, these next couple of questions, um, I would like to talk about the work itself and kind of dive into it. Okay. And I guess as a teaser, I understand that there's going to be a story coming out this Friday. Uh, not this Friday, but next Friday. Or not this Friday. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. I was about to this read Friday the I have, um... script. Yeah. <laughs> this Friday is just the entire the, thing out. <laughs> I am moving an entire sheet of stuff. I was going <laughs> Well, no, this, this, this Friday I don't have a story. You ruined it. You ruined it. <laughs> this Friday, I just have an ambiance video with like thunderstorms oh. and like Halloween okay, yeah. and stuff. But it's it's not a story. So my next story is is the Sinister Scarecrow. It's going to be called Haunted Possession okay, yeah, Sinister yeah. Scarecrow. That's that's the next one. Awesome. I just finished writing it. Um, just got to finish the video. Awesome, man. Well, we are looking forward to it. So speaking of the the Haunted Scarecrow, what does the writing process and production look like for your stories, Tony? Yeah, that's that, that, that's a harder question. Um, for me, it's not always the same. I don't, I don't think I really have like a, a method or a technique, but I'll come up with an idea sometimes just from observing something. So in one story I had mentioned, I had used um, a security alarm as uh, one of the scarier parts of the story. And in, in that instance, the alarm had said, there's something in the house. And the genesis of that was simply, I have a security alarm. And I, I thought, what if, what if this happened? So I'll take everyday things and then it just becomes part of the story. And then as far as characters go, um, I'd say the best description I've heard, because it applies to how it works for me, is I think it was Stephen King that said, it's like sitting around a, a campfire at night. And you see dark silhouettes right along the, the, the darkness, between the darkness and the light. And you call them forward one by one. And as they come closer, you get all the details. So to me, that's kind of how the characters develop. They, I kind of get a faint idea of them. And as they approach the light, they kind of get fleshed out. And that's how we learn who they are. Because as I'm writing it, I'm learning just as when you're listening to the story, you're reading the story, you're learning as you go along. Really, as I'm writing it, I'm learning as I, I go along. I don't really have a template where someone has to be this way, this way. They have to have all these attributes. It just kind of flows. So I think you kind of answered my wild card question. And the wild card question I had is, do you outline or do you just free write? It sounds free like write. you do a little bit of both. Oh, oh okay. Okay, cool. Oh, wow. I mean, the outline okay. would be very, very basic. Like I'll like a title. And um, sometimes I might have an idea how I want the story to begin and end, but everything in between is unknown. Well, so, I don't even well, know. So like, know well, so like for your vampire series, mm. uh, let's see, that was three stories, right? Or is that yeah, four? Yeah, so far three, three. Yep. Oh, oh, okay. Three. So was that page one and chapter one and then just boom, 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 boom. That one, you yeah. know, that one's a little different. Okay. I, um, because in my mind, there's a lot of moving parts in it. Yeah, yeah, it's only three episodes so far, but I'd like to continue that for quite some time. It could even, I might even put everything together and make it a book eventually. Um, but that is an instance where I had a, a big picture in my mind, 
So I have a vague outline of where I want to go, but still to, to get the parts together, that's all. There's no outline for that. I just have a general okay. structure of it, if that makes sense. The, the bones. Oh, yeah, sure. It sounds like a really authentic way of writing, and I, I imagine it's really exciting. Like, do you ever have, you know, in, any anxiety whenever you sit down to write? Is it like, in, oh, man, I hope this is going to turn out? Or No, actually, I, the, the writing is my favorite part of it. I don't, I don't really enjoy the narrating, awesome. even knowing that's um, essential because that's the, how I'm getting my story out there. But the writing, I love it. I lose track of time. Um, two, three hours can go by, and I'll be like, I thought it was 20 minutes. Um, but I, I don't get any stress with that. That kind of flows. It's hard work, don't get me wrong. But it's it's something that I take um, joy in. Um, I, I just like it. Well, I can certainly hear you on the narration part. I know from my history podcast, writing it, researching it especially. Oh, man, I tell you what, I, I could go deep just, just <laughs> researching my topic. But And then there was the editing for the podcast, which mm -hmm. I, I think what you're doing is, you know, so for those who have not checked Tony's workout, you can find his work on YouTube. Again, there will be a link in the show descriptions. But should you guys be checking his workout you will hear him narrating a story and he has some images. Man, I sound like my grandmother describing like the first time she opened the laptop. It's got these pictures that move and talk and your cousin has a box. I know he plugs in and, but um, yeah. <laughs> so Tony's stories are narrated by him. Yeah. They are narrated by Tony. Um, they are original to him. And the images, I'm not, so the images will have basically what you're narrating. How do you choose those images? Because the images flow very, very well with your narration. And Thank you. if you're describing a scene, yeah, you'll have a picture or you'll have a, you know, series of pictures, you know, like flowing water in your vampire tale. I think that was episode one of that. Yeah. And, uh, how yeah, do you a little choose bit them? of a, um, like, licensed, licensed uh, footage. To go with oh, the okay. and mix them up. But um, how do I do it? The hardest part, honestly, is trying to find things that are either public domain or things that I've already paid to have a license to. So all of the footage that I use, I have a license to use it. And the pictures, I just look for public domain. So I would. there are other pictures I would love to use, but I don't have the rights to them. So I really just do the best I can. I'll spend hours looking for pictures that will work, that, that will fit the story. Well, I think your work is really, really paying off, Tony, because your subscription count is going up. It's going I up. Your viewership is going that, up. Yeah. That's a pleasant surprise. Hopefully now that oh, spooky yeah. season is here, I'm hoping that it'll go up more. The Half Moon Inn needs more guests. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm going to make a prediction. I think based on the amount of awesome content that you are producing, Tony, the quality oh, of kind. your stories you. and – and by well, the way, um, I want not, everyone to well, know that I, I genuinely enjoy your stories because you, you have them up on your YouTube channel as well. I know you changed the name recently, but your your stories are, are excellent. And I know you write them and you narrate them yourself. And I, I respect that. I know it's hard work, but you're, you're, a good, you're a good writer. Well, I certainly appreciate it. And, you know, just writing those stories kind of, I mean, it gave me a deeper appreciation for authors everywhere and what they go through to try and make those stories a reality. 
So what's the favorite story you've written and narrated so far? I really like the vampire one, but I'm excited about the one, and I'm not doing this just to push it, the Sinister Scarecrow. I had a, I had a really good time. Oh, okay. That one. And I know, I don't know if people are going to be interested in something with a scarecrow in it, but it, it's a fun time. I thought. You know, what I like about your writing, you know, in these horror tales is that they really are good mythos. I mean, they're your classical monsters. And though, I mean, as you can you see, know, I, the, I like <laughs> I have the count standing next to me. <laughs> the count is looking a little shrunk. I think he's going to be looking for <laughs> Mina or Lucy after this show. So you, you better put some garlic up or something, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and so finally, Tony, um, what is the future of Haunted Half Moon in? Where do you see your channel going in a year from now? I have a prediction. I think you're going to reach over 2000 subscribers a year from now. At, you I know, at, so. at least that. that that's yeah. my and goal. what I said about, oh, yeah, and previously what I said about my prediction, mm -hmm. I think by the end of October, you're going to have 500 to 800 subscribers is, what I th is where I think your show is going to be. I hope so. I I'm shooting for 1,000, but I think that's a, not so likely. That's a, it's, a, it's a big goal, but we'll see if that, if that can happen. And then from there, I'm just going to, it's not so much, it, it, I want to have subscribers, but I just want to focus on the work. And if the stories are good, and as long as people are aware that the stories are there, I want them to check it out. Hopefully they'll like it, and then maybe we can all grow together. Awesome. It, for awesome. me, I mean, I'm still learning. You know, I'm not, I'm not Stephen King, but I'm trying to improve as I go along. Well, they say that with quantity comes quality. And, you know, your very first story was good. It was definitely better than my first story, you know, you know, as far as quality and any kind of metric that you could measure it. I don't know about that. I liked yours, so. <laughs> I like mine too, but I'm kind of not an impartial judge of it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I think that if you're going to look at the difference in quality between story one, and this goes for any author out there, and story 100. Story 100 is just going to beat the pants off of story one any day. And so I'm really, really interested, Tony, in what Haunted Half Moon Inn is going to look like after Halloween of this year and after the first of the new year of next year, because I think that is going to be even more awesome than what it is now. I hope so. I, I appreciate yeah. that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best. For sure. We can definitely see it. And as viewers and listeners, we certainly appreciate you agreeing to step into the labyrinth with me and kind of go over your work, Tony. Yes. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Frank, for having me. Anytime. And I hope to have you back on again, Tony. Definitely. This was fun. Oh, yes, and sir. before I forget, just because you don't see them doesn't mean. Doesn't that mean they're not there. Exactly. And good night. Thank you, Tony. Good night.